Welcome to Men in This Town, the podcast. I'm Giuseppe Santamaria, and for over a decade, I've been photographing men's street style in various towns around the world, looking for those whose dress sense speak volumes about who they are. In this podcast, I take a closer look at those men by bringing them into the studio for a portrait and having a chat about their particular approach to the many facets of life. In this episode, I welcome Min Bowie Jones to the studio, a man who made his way over to Australia as a young boy while finding refuge from Vietnam in the late 70s with his family. To summarize his story in any way doesn't know justice, so I'll leave it to you to have a listen for yourself. But to me, it's a story of compassion and perseverance, something we could all do with a little right now. Head over to meninthistown.com to view selects from our portrait session, and in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the conversation that took place. Thank you so much for coming in. Appreciate You're it. Welcome. We'll start off with um, introducing yourself. Uh, your name, age, and what you do for a living. Right. Min Bui Jones is my name. I'm Vietnamese by birth, and I came here as a refugee in 1978, and so I'm now 52 years old. So, and I work, uh, I've been working as a journalist most of my adult life since I left university. And currently I edit and publish the Mekong Review, which is a quarterly magazine on Asian literature and culture. Amazing, we'll get a lot more into that, which is exciting. But I guess, what was it like for you and your family coming over to Australia in the 70s, was it? Late 70s. Late 70s. What was that like? Well, that was very different because I was nine years old. And so... Do you remember it? I remember very vague details. Mm. It gets sharper as I get older. And um, I don't know why that is. <laughs> I think I'm inventing my history. Um, but I was very young and we came from... Vietnam to Australia via Malaysia and we when we arrived of course we we didn't know anything about the country that we had been sent to and so everything was a surprise we arrived in Australia at the in the middle of winter and we came from a tropical country and we left the country with very little with just the clothes on our backs, which was, uh, you know, um, shorts and T-shirts. And so we arrived here in winter and it was absolutely freezing. And I remember quite vividly seeing my, my skin, my brown skin turning white because they just crack from the, from the cold uh, air. And I was in a lot of pain. Remember what was happening to me? The skin just cracked from, you know, the the the, the you know we're quite small people, and we, and we've been on a boat for a couple of months in the sea, uh, and been on a refugee island for another month or so. So we're quite gaunt and taut, our skin, and so the the winter air just cracked it open, and we were in a lot of pain. And I remember mm-hmm. that quite vividly. That would have been something as a child to experience. I can't, no one can imagine really. It's 
Well, I, I guess so, but you know, as I, you realize as you, uh, as you're growing up, that you're not alone. There mm. are quite a few refugees who have, you know, who've gone through what you've been through, and that's, <coughs> sorry, that's always been such a, a wonderful discovery growing up. You know, I thought that our story of having fled the country on a small boat, surviving all the hardship of that journey and making it to Malaysia in one piece and then arriving in Australia and then picking up the pieces and restarting life as my parents did and my siblings too. And then just slowly finding our feet and, and, and so on. Anyway, I find that story to be... Repl- you know, I, I, I've, I've heard it from so many people I've come across, whether they're from Iran, from Pakistan, from Cambodia, from Myanmar. And so, you know, you're not alone. And some of the other stories I've heard are far, far more horrendous, what mm. people have been through and how they survived and so on, what they witnessed along the way. It... And uh, sometimes I felt a bit, uh, a bit embarrassed that I've made such a big deal about our own journey, uh, whereas other people have, have endured much worse than we have. How was it for your, your parents to kind of start from scratch here? How do you think? I mean, not that you necessarily know directly, but how do you think their minds kind of would have handled it? Well, my parents came from very different backgrounds. And so they handled the transition differently. Mm. My father was from a fairly well-off middle-class family. He went to university, which was not common. And so he was an educated man, as we say. And my mum, however, came from a very poor family. Her family, she's from Hoi An, in central Vietnam, her family were, they did everything. They, they transport goods for a living. They were fishmongers and they were, and when work ran out, they farmed, they tilled their own backyard and live off that. And they still do. Her family still live in this little part of this little portion of, of land that they settled hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And so she had maybe one or two years uh, in primary school. But, you know, when I said school, that's very... Uh, it's not what we would imagine. I think hers was just a very uh, modest um, affair, maybe... You know, kids come there for a couple of hours. There'll be a handful of them in the village and they would be taught just to identify a few letters of the alphabet and mm. so on. So she had a very, very uh, basic education. And so when they came to Australia, my father, who had been a self-made man, who he left university and joined the Viet Minh and fought the French and then he fought... He was a soldier, he was an officer. And when he, when we came here, 
he experienced a fall from grace. He was a very proud man who couldn't pick up the language. He came too late. He was in his 50s when he arrived, and so he couldn't pick up the new language. And, and I think that that really frustrated him. Um, where's my mum, however, because she came from a very poor f- background and didn't really, was, not, was barely literate. And she came also from, she, ex- she existed until, uh, until Australia in a, in a very patriarchal, uh, patrilinear culture. Mm. And therefore her role in a family was, was that of a kitchen slave. And so when she arrived here, she had a different journey from my mum, about my dad, sorry. And she experienced a, she felt empowered Mm. as a woman. She taught herself to read and write in both languages, Vietnamese and and English. She didn't know how to uh, write in Vietnamese and she, and I think she went to night school. And anyway, my mum went up and my dad went down, mm. uh, in short. And my father never really recovered from that decline. He felt uh, quite... Uh, he, he, he felt a lesser being. I remember him saying to me one day when he was being... Uh, insulted by the bus driver, he couldn't get his uh, his fare right, and he 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 got quite he felt quite humiliated, and um, he said, you know, seen in the back of the bus, he said, I'm dumb, stupid, and blind in this country, and that summed up his life here, and and you know, which explained uh, how i never understood why he he kind of drank himself to death which he did but th- that was part of the reason why he did he he couldn't bear with the humiliation of being blind dumb and deaf as, as he put it how did you feel seeing that did you realize what he was going through at the time no i didn't i didn't know that and i think i was very slow i think we all were and to an extent society at large don't really appreciate what the first generation refugees, asylum seekers and migrants go through. Mm. They came, they arrived to a settler country like Canada, America, Australia as adults. It was too late for them to reinvent themselves, you know. They came for their children, more or less. Mm. And so for them, they are living the rest of their you know, the rest of their life as lesser beings, you know. I, to give you an example, I didn't know my father that well. He kept to himself because, like a lot of men who've been to war, he was very reluctant to talk about his life. And so I didn't really know much about him. And, and I was young and was just very busy chasing a ball in the park for most of my life. <laughs> and so when we went back to Vietnam together as father and son, that was our first trip back. How old were you then? I was, I was 20 or 19. I can't remember very well. I just finished university. And 
my earphones slipping. Uh, <laughs> and so I'd, so we went back to Vietnam for the first time. I was very excited. I was insanely excited. And we arrived in Ho Chi Minh City, and we went to our hotel. I think this would have been in 1990 or 1991. It was very early on when Vietnam just opened. Vietnam opened to the world in the late 80s. Uh, And so for the first time, people like my father, who my family had fled the country as refugees, could come back with some, with, with safety. Um, and so he, we came back and we went to this hotel in the center of the city. Um, and I was, I, as soon as we checked in, I got onto a motorbike and uh, a bike and I pedaled around the city and disappeared and Ho Chi Minh back then was a very small city and within 20 minutes I was out in the in in the sticks and then in the hinterland and I got quite lost mm-hmm. by the time I found my way back to the hotel it was late in the day and I walk into the foyer it was completely empty there was no one there and then um, I looked around and I could hear voices at the back of the back of the hotel so I made my way to this uh, room the door was slightly ajar and I looked uh, and I the the door was ajar so I just had a view of the back of the room and there were people sitting on the ground um, staff and hotel guests they were sitting there looking at the stage and they were um, just attentively listening to whoever was speaking and they were just quite no they were having a great time laughing and clapping and so on and I I peer my head in and the person who was entertaining them who had them in his hand was my father he was regaling stories (laughs) telling poetry he was just uh, he was a performer and there he was in his in his natural element speaking in his language he was so insanely articulate you know I've never this was a man who couldn't even buy a bus ticket in Australia and he was a very different person and and therefore I that's when I grasped how far how how far he's fallen and, Mm. and and how how much that hurt him and how much he was pained by that, and he, and he, his conception of himself as a person who had gone to, who, who had a life that we didn't know much about. That he had left university, left his family, and went into the jungle and joined the nationalist movement to fight for his country's independence. And, you know, in any context, whether it's Spain or Greece, that would have been highly romantic. Mm -hmm. But it was a war in which it was ghastly, it was nasty, and there was no romance in it because so many people have died and continues to suffer today. There's no romance in it at all. And that life, you know, and he suffered enormously from that. You, You know, he... He gave up his education, 
fought, got seriously injured and came back during the, the armistice in 54 and he came back to see his parents. His parents thought he had died, disappeared. Mm. And so when his mum saw him for the first time in, in a decade or more, she had a heart attack and died oh. not long after that. And so he had a very tough life mm. and, and he, he'd gone through that. But all of that heroic, uh, all those heroic endeavours were never shared. He kept mm. it, he kept them all to himself. I uh, he took them to his grave. And it was only later, you know, when I kind of was interested in his life that I uh I went I went back to Vietnam later on my own and um saw some of our relatives and they told me stories and from those stories I was able to piece together the jigsaw puzzle that was his life, you know, and but that was that was after he had died, he had gone, and so, um, so I've never, so you know, in a way, you know, never really didn't know him until uh, until it was much too late. What kind of impact do you think his life had on you as you got older? It's difficult to say because he was. I, when I was growing up as a teenager, my father was in a dreadful state of decline. And so he was nursing a grief, nursing a pain that he didn't show. And so he channeled all of that into his work. Um, he worked as... Uh, in, 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 in the garden, he was growing vegetables and selling them to the market. He worked seven days a week. He was always outdoor uh, working. And so we really didn't, I didn't know him. I guess it, in, some, in some ways, I think if, he, if his life or his life story uh, has any effect on me as a as 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 an adult uh man i think it's because i i think i like to think that i am perhaps a bit more forgiven towards people of his generation if they appear to our generation to younger people as either misogynistic or sexes or whatever faults they, they, they have, I think they were a product of their culture, their upbringing, mm-hmm. as, in as much as we are. I think in 50 years' time or 70 years' time, people might look back on us and say, God, well, they were barbarous. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I tend not to judge people for those things because I think of my father and I think I would not judge him for his beliefs or his instincts mm. because I think they came, he was born with them, he was nurtured in such a setting. His yeah. parents passed them on, his culture passed them on, his friends passed them on. And therefore, I, 
I think that's, you know, I especially in our culture at the moment when everyone is so hypersensitive about you having to show that you have the right attitude on every conceivable subject, um, whether it's football or grazing a carrot, you know, people... And, and I tend to um, not to... Um, you know, I think of my dad often uh, because, you know, he... In, in our culture, in our society today, in 2021, Sydney, he would be, you know, uh, he would be a a visitor from outer space. <laughs> he would be so strange. He would be so uh, culturally inept, uh, out of place, and and he would feel feel very he would feel very lonely. And I think there are many people like him out there in Bankstown, in Fairfield, in their 80s and 90s, who feel they don't really understand. And in, in many ways, it's not their fault. No, we no. have moved very fast. Especially in the last 10 years? Insanely mm. so. We've moved very fast. Things have moved very fast. And the ways in which our, the values of, of the Western society have moved very quickly because of the internet, it's been it's been transferred. Whatever is in vogue in New York City or London will be here by next week, mm-hmm. and mm. we have to kind of understand what's going on. And and there's not multiple it, cultures because of that. Is are you finding that it's like everything is just one culture in the end? Maybe I don't know. I guess we exist as you and I work in, in media. We probably um, exist in that, uh, in a certain uh, strata that we're probably more uh, in tune with all the shifts in in technology and culture and the media and so on in world events. But there are people who are not in tune with that. That's Mm. not their interest. They are more interested in, in fishing, catching birds, mm. making the perfect barbecue, and that's their world. And they, uh, and they have found contentment in that world, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and they exist in Parramatta, they exist in Windsor, they exist in North Queensland or wherever else, and we don't know much about them or we don't hear or read about them because often, as you know, living in a city like Sydney in a metropolitan area, we tend to tell stories about people that we know that we come across. In a sense, we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves. Mm. But we don't really venture out far to, to, to try to find stories that are different. But in a way ordinary that is we're not that you know the, the temptation is to exoticize these stories as if as i said these were visitors from outer space but they are just people i think everyone has their story has their way of life and it's it is important to share those stories and mm. if they don't kind of go with your values and know your way you have to accept that everyone has their own way of living and it's they have the right to. I, mean, I always think that 
quote unquote bad people. It's like I understand they don't go with what your values are, but it's who's to say what's right and what's wrong? Who are you to judge about anything? You know, it's we're all in the same boat. We're all trying to kind of get through life and try to figure out what it's all about. Then, yeah, exactly. Just, mm. And the the quest for for meaning, that quest for contentment, is different. Mm. But it's still the same quest. It's yes. a personal quest. Is it fair to say with? Um, when you were here in Adelaide or Melbourne, was it? Where you Adelaide. Guys, Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of take on your your mom's kind of view of kind of being excited about being in somewhere new and being able to learn, or how was your kind of point of view? Well, I think that's a very uh, poetic way of putting it, but I was uh, very, um, you know. When you're young, growing up, you don't really, you're not conscious of what you're doing. You mm. just do it by impulse. And I certainly was very caught up in my own life. Um, I was, uh, I mean, I was, um, I was very um, immersed in the new country, new culture. And like a lot of teenagers, you know, I was, and that's the 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 the, the great thing about arrive for me. I was lucky that I came here on the cusp of teenhood in there, and you know, and the desire to fit in was so powerful, such an overpowering uh, desire to be to fit into the new society to in your environment that. I did everything I could to be an Australian teenager. Mm. And so I picked up the language quickly. I played all the sport like a good (laughs) Aussie kid. And I did everything that was considered average and normal. Mm. And I fitted in very easily. And... And also, I was, and I, so I, in a way, I lived my life separate from what took place in my family. Right. You almost wanted that escape, wasn't it? Yes, it it was. Mm. Well, to be honest, I did understand what was going on. Mm. I mean, I look back and see the debris, but, but while I was there, I didn't see it. I knew that it wasn't my sin. It wasn't uh, something that I could absorb as a child. I didn't understand any of it. And so I sought escape through books or through soccer or through my school. Mm. What were your kind of hopes when you were young to kind of, well, what can it be? What can life be? Well, I was, um, I was, I was really, really into um, the reading. <laughs> I I read a lot. I read voraciously when I was re- when I was young, which was I guess another escape. It was a big escape mm. because I read mainly fantasy. Mm. I was, I think, I was barely a year into the country learning the new language when I started reading. You know, 
Tolkien's 900-plus page, The Law of the Rings. Wow. I didn't really understand much of it, but I was enwrapped in it, mm. reading it to the wee hours of the morning. And I read a lot of fantasy books when I was young. But then again, a lot of teenagers did. They still yeah. do these days. That's just pure escapism, great adventure writing. And so I did a lot of that. But I never really, under, I never really um, had a... Had a clear idea of what I wanted to be, and that, to an extent, looking back, was part of that separate worlds that I was living. You know, my parents had, like a lot of Asian parents, would see a university as a ladder to a comfortable. Wealthy life to mm. wealth, more or less. So, careers were the, the options were very narrow. You know, you either become a doctor, an accountant, a lawyer, and that's it, really. And so, you know, I was never interested in any of those things, nor was I cut out for that temperamentally or academically. And so, I drifted towards uh, a bachelor, uh, an arts degree in the humanities because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And, and it's only when I was at university doing all those subjects that I discovered a new world, the world of writing, the world of journalism. That's when I you know, got interested and realised this is no fact, or discovered this is what I wanted to, to do. Which was something that was from your childhood and reading and writing and storytelling, isn't it? Yes, it, it was. Uh, but it was very different, you know, mm. discovering the world of, of public affairs, discovering all those journals I saw. I can still remember, you know, the first thing I did when I arrived on campus was to go straight to the library and to the the magazine section and going through, I must have spent the first two hours of every day just reading everything that I could get my hands on, you know, going from the news statesman to the spectator to the the, the literary journals to even obscure journeys, uh, journals on, on science and pig rearing. I don't know, I just got everything. Mm. I just loved and, and, and first, you know, I was drawn to the the substance, the the content, and then later on, I was I started to notice the furniture, so to speak, how this thing was arranged, the the typeface, the design, the sequence of a magazine and its layout, its geography, and 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 there was a, a presiding genius. <laughs> who put this together, who mm. had uh, arranged this room in a way that when you walk in, turn the page, you knew exactly where to go, where to sit down, and the orientation of a magazine and its form and the, and the journey that you go from page 5 to page 10, it had a logic, a flow to it. And I absorbed that and I really... And, you know, I love that. You're speaking my language. <laughs> Not many people understand it, but you're speaking my language. <laughs> I hear you. Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's, um, 
it's a language that it's really, you know, you and I can spend three hours in a pub and just <laughs> go through this, you know, mm. and it would be a lot of fun. But when I go to a, when I see a, say, a new magazine or talk to someone who is just um, starting his or her first publication and and I can tell them immediately, very quickly anyway, that they really didn't understand how this is done. They're just mm. doing it because, oh, a magazine's cool. It's a quick way to, 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 to put your ideas together or yeah. push a course or whatever. And it's a and there isn't that understanding the, of the concept behind it, the, yeah. the structure behind it, these invisible structures that hold this this building up. This, uh, and uh, that fascinated you. Fascinated me hugely, mm. and I, you know, I initially, I, you know, I was a serious young man, uh, when I started out in journalism, first at SBS in the, the Sydney Morning Herald, I was, you know, pushed along by passionate uh, beliefs in, 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 you know, social values and justice and all of that. But it, and, and I, and I started in television, so I, you know, absorb some of the ideas of visuals, the importance of of telling telling stories just by images alone. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, and I was, and in that medium, sometimes the written text is redundant or that you, that you could tell a story from just opposing photos and images and right. moving images without, and if you had a right soundtrack that could be the written word that mm. could push a, a a story along. That shocked me. That really did. I really, I don't think I actually got over it, and um, and I've never really, and then, and I still look back on those days as you know, like you just coming of age when I suddenly realised that you could tell a story without the written word. That really <laughs> shocked me. And uh, well, TV was probably what nineties was it? I guess was just starting to be more experimentative, wasn't mm, it? So it was, yeah. And you know the, the the idea that you could, you know, map out a story by using just images. You can say, for instance, if I wanted to tell a story on. The transformation of King's Cross mm. uh, over the last five years or since COVID, that you can have, uh, you know, uh, Professor of Urban History spending five series talking about King's Cross, or you can have a five great dynamic minutes of photos, montage of what has been happening in the cross. Which underlay with the soundtrack of the of the times, you know, this, how the music that was coming out from mm. a clay street below us, or and the sound of people talking, and from at seven o'clock, 
20 years ago to 7 o'clock today when everyone's going home to bed. Mm. You know, life was just kicking in, mm. in, in the cross back then, 20 years ago. And, and, in, and, and, then, I, and then I went to, 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 uh, to print journalism, which I absolutely love. But I also found that in, in the magazine form that you could have a marriage of, of, uh, of image and text. And the most powerful thing about the magazine was that these two components could amplify into something much more powerful. And, and the thing about the magazine, which is different from, say, television or films, is that it's, it's one medium, just like print, it's one medium that you can control. And I like that, the, the, the exercise of, of human autonomy, that you could turn the page, you can switch to page, you can read start with page three and jump to page 30 so easily without having to find out the shift button or whatever. And, 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 I, and you know, the, the way a, a headline next to an image, it doesn't have to be a, a powerful image, but it, if, it, if it relates to the headline, and the headline relates to the image. Those two combined can be deadly. Mm. Can really say something that that you know sinks in. That you know makes the reader realize, ah, golly. I think like so much of you can relate TV to social media mm. and being that quick thing that you just see for a few minutes yes. or seconds mm. or print, you could actually sit and yes. kind of look for as long as you possibly can and That's really that. absorb something, isn't it? That's right. And that, th and that absorption changes by the second. You can have the instant effect, ah, and then, oh, you know, and you can look at it for a long time. And I mean, for me, the idea that, the, the, the marriage of text and, and image in many ways for me is to create that mood for for the right mood for reading that piece whether it's reflective or oh I'm angry this is gonna make me mm. more angry that's gonna this is, I'm gonna ride this 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 energy and and that, that the creating that right atmosphere for reading for each article uh, for me it's all um, it's incredibly satisfying and, mm. the, and the most um, I think the most sat satisfying part of my work and and I also love it because it's so you know it's so so absorbing in the sense that no one really knows what I'm doing mm -hmm. I'm sitting there in the dark playing with different images and typefaces and finding it and Set and laying it down and then getting it printed and it's out there and people read it and they say, wow, that's really fantastic. I really like that. But they didn't know why, mm. what happened. They just got mugged. <laughs> I hear you. It, so you were doing this at the City Morning Herald? Was I was this? a journalist there. Journalist I wasn't, there. I, I went into a magazine after I left the, the Herald. I started working in... Um, 
there was a magazine, I can't remember what it's called, Australian Star, or I can't remember. And then I worked in uh, um, an Asian cultural magazine called Amida that was in Canberra. That was the first magazine that I edited. And then I, and then I worked in a political magazine called Australian Quarterly. I think I was the associate editor. And then after that, I started my own publication with mm. a couple of friends called The Diplomat, which was a foreign affairs magazine. That was really uh, the first magazine in which, by which, by, by the time I started The Diplomat in 2001, and that came, that, that came at a particular pressure point in history. I was in New York City weeks after 9-11. Right. And then being in New York City, I, you know, it was fairly apparent even to a blind person that the world was changing. And so I rushed home to Sydney and with a couple of mates we started this uh, foreign affairs magazine which by first by at that time was the first kind of um, non-institutional affiliated Foreign Affairs magazine. Mm. There is, it was a market. It was a a, 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 um, a magazine that was just um, a commercial right. magazine on foreign affairs. Unusual, but common these days because of the state of our world. Mm. And so we, we started that. And that was the first magazine in which I really had a complete creative control over because my... Colleagues who uh, were working with me, their background wasn't in magazine, wasn't in journalism, wasn't in media. Theirs was one was from academia, the other one was uh, at university. So I had many complete artistic control over the design and, and of course, the, the the content of the magazine too. And and I and then I started to experiment. Uh, firstly, I it was I I I copy a, a, a classic structure of a magazine, which then was it had the sort of a, if you can imagine a magazine back in you see it less these days, but before say um, from the from the from the eighties and nineties and even the noughties, most magazines had a very familiar structure. It had this sort of a, uh, a sort of an entree beginning, short little pieces. Right. And then there were the, the main features, sort of the main course. And then at the very end was the the sweeps, the desserts, yeah, you know, yeah. the tidbits and the cultural, the, the book reviews and the, the music reviews. They mm. were short pieces. So you still see that format a lot. That right? format mm. is, is very traditional mm. and I... And I and I and I borrow that and I use that holus bolus in the diplomat. It's only later on that I saw that you can subvert that. You can really change that. You you can play around with that. You know, with with the magazine I'm editing at the moment, the Mekong Review. The main course is right beginning. I mean, I don't hide it. This is you know, I I I I want to people to wake up with the train the sound of a train crash <laughs> mm. well that's a good way to look at it isn't it just a bang right yeah there. i want you know i just want to jump straight into it none of this kind of slow foreplay thing mm. you know i went straight into 
and often the strongest piece is the first piece, mm. and then the and then the, the the big interview, which is for me on always uh, starting on page nine. Sufficiently, the interview. The, I'm not. You haven't seen. I didn't bring a copy of the magazine because uh, I, I was uh, absent-minded. Because you have seen that over the last seven, more more than six years, um, six and a half years, the structure remains the same. I've always put the interview on page nine. Mm. Uh, because a written interview is one of the hardest things you can imagine, one of the hardest things to do in a magazine because an interview by, you know, it should be on radio, it should be on television, you, you should be able to hear my voice, see my hand gestures on paper. You can't hear that, no. you can't see that, which sometimes is as powerful as what I'm saying, mm. you know. I could be saying something serious with a smirk on my face, mm. for instance, like our Prime Minister does sometimes in the crisis. <laughs> and that tells you more about yeah, him yeah, yeah. or about me than then then what is re- that what you read on how do you paper. translate that how do you translate mm. that how do you convey that to the reader and so the 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 interview has to be done in a way that tries to mimic that interaction between the interviewee and the interviewer as much as possible every i every interview we do i go through this with the journalist you know we're gonna run this verbatim almost Mm. and so your questions have to be really short and sharp Mm. and you have to know what the answer is you cannot be surprised by that Mm. so you really have to do your homework know what the answer is to anticipate your follow-up question and the question has to be really short and therefore you create this drama that you are rehearsing a drama you know you know um if I, for instance, were to interview a someone who has lied in public about something, the idea would be to go th- back through that story and let that person tell that story again and jump in and said, but based on what I've seen, this has turned out to be false. Mm. Oh, let them, you know, uh, tell their stories and then anticipating the answer to, 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 to challenge them at the critical moment. Therefore, in that interview, you create the drama of, of a live interview, so, so mm. to speak. And it's a tricky one. But it's always on page nine. And, and so the idea has always been for me that the magazine is a is a habit you're I'm trying to get someone addicted to a regular then you know coffee in the morning a cigarette watching the, the sunrise or whatever you, they, they get addicted to that rhythm to that mm. to that and so when they see the Mekong review they know exactly what to expect there's no if you're a regular reader there's no surprises yeah, yeah, yeah. except for the content the every content, content is, is, yeah. is very different love the way you look at the, that the format is and the, the structure is very similar, and and yeah. What do you think gave you the courage to start the Diplomat and then now the Mekong Review? What's 
where did that come from? I mean, being a journalist is one thing, but actually starting a business really is another thing where it's, I think a lot of creatives have trouble sometimes to kind of have the, the courage or strength or knowledge to be able to do it. Mm. I don't know. Um, I think um, there are probably a few reasons, and I can't remember them all, and hopefully they will come to me as I talk, but I think one of them would be that I have always been interested in... Well, no, I I always believe that if you want to do something that you... If you want to write or read something, your perfect magazine, and your perfect magazine doesn't exist. Therefore, you have to create it. Another way of putting it is that if you want to have something to do to to justify that is a job you know to to pay the rent and the groceries and, and so on but you don't want to do your 9 to 5 office work you have to invent your own job you have to invent your own magazine if you're into that business mm. for what i'm into you know i'm into um I'm interested in literature, I'm interested in politics, I'm interested in Asia. Well, um, if I live in Australia, I'm not going to be able to find the magazine no. that would do that for me. And so I have to create my own magazine. In the same way that if you were a... If you believe in climate change today, you're not going to wait for government policies, are you? You're just going to do it yourself. Right bugger them I'll do it myself it's more satisfying but what's it like final question what's your mindset right now what's it like to be you right now that mindset with what I do for a living is that whenever I've started a magazine and the Mekong Review has been my fifth magazine a magazine is a mirror I'm looking at the mirror um, magazine is is for me a magazine should last forever. A magazine mm. ought to reflect a period in time. You know, it captures that mood, that spirit, as I guess. And the Mekong Review, when I started it in two thousand October two thousand fifteen, captured a period in my life that was that was very different. That's gone now. I lived in Cambodia at the time when. It was very exciting because the Euro crisis in Europe and the political frustration in America and in Australia had set off a lot of young people in looking for something better to do. And they ended up drifting in Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam. And there they were. I was... I couldn't believe my luck as an editor. I had such a supply of writers and artists. You know, a business person would think, is there a demand for this? And for me, I'm not a business person. 
I often think is their supply. I need, I need artists, I need writers. A mm. magazine just, you just can't f- fill up the, 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 the white spaces with just anything. It has to be good stuff. And so, and that, that was a particular moment. That moment's gone. All those, those streets, I could commission an entire issue of a magazine on one street in Phnom Penh because mm. there were so many people walking mm. around, could nab them and, and, and commission them between my espressos. <laughs> and, but those days are gone. Cambodia's closed. A lot of those backpackers and, and, and creatives and writers have gone home. And we are uh, at a different time. Um, when, I, when I started American Review was when Obama was elected and I th- felt something new was happening. Mm. I was wrong. Nothing <laughs> changed. Right. But I started American Review based on that feeling. I started The Diplomat after 9-11, mm. sensing that the world was going to change. And on, on that occasion, I was right. And I think at the moment... The Mekong Review has reached a point when you know, you know it. I feel like I probably I'm 52 now. I probably don't have the strength uh, to create another one. But if I was in, if I was five years younger, <laughs> I probably would start something right now, something to reflect what is, I think, a new world that we are entering entering into and and you know for for those of you who are listening out there who wants to start a magazine the trick is to get out there just before other people mm. also have the same idea um you just you know it's 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 you have to have impeccable timing you can't come out too late but you can't come out too early either so it has to be right well, maybe, I don't know, we could do something. <laughs> <laughs> Your brain is fantastic. I mean, thank you so much for sharing just a little bit of your story. Oh, thank you. And I look forward to the many chapters ahead that you're going to fill. Oh, so. thank you. That's very kind of you. And thank, thank you. you for listening. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Men in This Town, the podcast, produced by Mitwork and recorded at Pocket Studio in Sydney. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate and leave a review wherever you're listening. And as always, thanks for your support.